today we are talking about, uh, this is our second week uh, dealing with um, the history and theology of Mercy Hill Church, the, um, the teaching that is kind of required for people to grasp as it relates to becoming members here at Mercy Hill. And uh, last week, if you guys are here, you remember that the conversation kind of revolved mostly about the history of kind of how the history influences who we are as a church and how it has influenced it. In many ways, that history has kind of fed into our theology, and today we'll start to kind of capture um, the theological understandings of who we are as Mercy Hill Church. Um, Today, we'll specifically be talking about one of the three primary theological ideas that that kind of drive who we are. As a, as a church. Now, you kind of touched on it last week already, because one of the things that, I, that, that Jesse would have talked to you guys about was the idea that foundationally, um, we believe in, in the, the fidelity to Scripture, that the primary driver of everything we do as a church is going to be what the Word of God says. We test everything by that, the way in which we interact, the way we preach, the way we deal with people, the way we, the way we deal with, so, with leading people to Christ, the way in which we deal with finances. Every single thing that we do is really rooted in, in, in fidelity to Scripture. The Bible says that we believe it is kind of the way we go, and we want to act on it from that perspective. So when we get into anything else, all of it is going to be rooted in what we see in Scripture. What does Scripture say about this? Um, it's one of the real challenges that I've always had towards people I have no problem with people challenging what we do or, or what we teach, ever. It's just you better bring your Bible with you when you do, because what it really comes down to is what does the Word of God say, and then we go from there. So um, personal criticisms I don't think are very helpful, and uh, personal opinions I don't think is, is where a church should be built on. It's built on, on Scripture. And so as we go through this, as we talk about theologically, we begin to see each, each time that that's what we're, that's where we're rooting all of this in. Um, and so if you look at the top of uh, top there, there's two verses that um, kind of lead us to our first, theological, our first theological understanding, our idea. In John 16, however, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. And then in Romans 8, it says, for as many as are led by the spirit of God, these are the sons of God. This begins to give a, a, a broad foundation of what we believe as one of our first three pillars, and it's dealing with the concept of the charismatic uh, Pentecostal continuationism. As I said, there are three broad theological positions uh, that spring for our commitment to the centrality of Scripture. Um, uh, it is uh, continuationism, uh, charismatic, um, Pentecostal. We'll kind of talk about those today. That's where we're going to be re- uh, working from. Uh, reformed and missional. And so next week we'll di- 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 um, talk about our concept of reformed theology, and then the following week will be about our, our, mission, our concept of missional theology. Um, and the charismatic, as it says here, is really the first uh, in its impact on the formation of Mercy Hill. Uh, and it really is, um, as we go through this, you'll begin to see kind of how this idea is sewn into all of the things we do, the approach we have, the way in which the church is led, the way in which we conduct the Sunday morning service, the way we do everything. This is really um, foundationally sewn into everything and, and, and um, kind of who we are. Um, because as you look at those verses, both of them say, and both of them are leading us towards this, 
you as a follower of Jesus Christ, you as disciples of Christ, you as the church are going to be led by the Holy Spirit. That, that what's being encouraged here, what's being told here is, is that the Holy Spirit is going to come and the Holy Spirit is going to be the one that leads you into truth. The Holy Spirit is the one that leads the sons and daughters of Christ. And it is the Holy Spirit is the one that moves us forward. Now for us, what we believe is that the Holy Spirit is continuing to lead Christians and lead believers in the same way that we see in the New Testament. That's essentially what we mean by um, continuationism. It is that the Holy Spirit continues to work in the church in the same manner we see evidence in the first century church. Um, as we talk about this, for a lot of you, you might have different, um, might have different experiences and backgrounds with the basic concept. Um, when I when I grew up, we kind of nuke. We kind of called ourselves Pentecostals. We were we were Pentecostals growing up. Um, the, the we always used to say there were the Charismaniacs, and there were those of us who were the Pentecostals. And the concept of continuationism was not really anything that I talked about until I got off the Bible college, and we kind of understood it as more theological, in the more theological kind of realm. Um, and what I've discovered over the years is that different people have different understandings based on their experience as to what each one of those words means. Whenever we talk, for us, in our vernacular, when we talk about as Mercial Church, when we talk about Pentecostalism or Charismatic, what we're really talking about is a continuationism. And literally what it means is that the, the Holy Spirit continues to work in the same way he did in the first century church. So when we see what is recorded in the book of Acts and we see what is described in the, in, in the book of 1 Corinthians, we basically say, like, this isn't just for that time period or that season. This isn't just for the apostolic age. This isn't just for until Scripture was written. But this is the way in which God interacts with church from here on out. And so in the same way that he interacted in those times, he's interacting with us today. If you look there under that basic definition, I've got several different passages. Several of them are, are larger, and I'll just kind of touch on them so you can kind of get a, get a taste of what, um, of what we're really saying um, this looks like, or what this can look like. If you look there in, um, in Acts, if you got your Bible, you, you, you can look at it, but in Acts 2, 38 through 47, and Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, everyone in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord God calls to himself. And with many words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and they were added to that day 3,000 souls. Now, as you, as you continue to, to, to go on there, it, it describes what happened after this. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, the breaking of bread and prayers, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles." So what you're seeing here, what I, what I just kind of pulled out of that passage in Acts chapter 2, is, is really kind of um, an expression of how the Holy Spirit was working in the first century church. And, and part of this is kind of shadowing. How many people know um, what happened prior to verse 38 there in Acts chapter 2? Anybody know what that was? What happened in Acts chapter 2 prior to verse 38? It's Pentecost. The Pentecost experience. Yeah, there you go. And it was, it was the Holy Spirit came, if you guys remember, they were up the room praying, the Holy Spirit came in, 
um, like a rushing wind. They were baptized in the Holy Spirit. They began to speak in other tongues. They poured into the street, and then Peter preaches this message. So from that experience of the Holy Spirit coming in, and they were baptized in the Holy Spirit, and they spoke in tongues, this is where, where Peter then says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The gift of the Holy Spirit that they had just received in the upper room that had them speaking in tongues. And then later on, as you're reading here, right, it says, after they, were, after they gave their hearts to the Lord and they were baptized in the Holy Spirit, they went forward and signs and wonders were following them, right? Signs happened in, as they were following them. So you begin to kind of see what's taking place here. And then if you go further up in Peter's sermon here, one of the things he says in there is, why are you guys marveling? Because everybody's looking at these guys who were baptized in the Holy Spirit. They poured in the streets. They spoke in, in, in tongues. And these people are like, oh, what's going on here? This is weird. They were, must have been, some of them were thinking they were, they were drunk and that. And Peter's response was, why do you marvel about this? And then he goes in and he quotes the prophet Joel. And he says, in the last days, I will pour out my spirit. And he talks about dreaming dreams and prophesying and that. And he's saying, this is what you're seeing. So one of the things that you have to anchor this in, one of the things that you have to accept in this is, okay, so now we're seeing some of the things that took place in the first century through the work of the Holy Spirit in them. And this is just one chapter, right? And Peter's making a declaration in that passage where he's saying, this will take place in the last days. In the last days. How many of you guys think the last days ended? Right? So if they're in the last days, are we in the last days? So then why would, why would the prophecy of Joel that Peter quotes here include something along the lines of, this will happen in the last days and then stop. And the rest of the last days will go forward without the things that Joel prophesied would be taking place. So this is why we believe that what you see in the New Testament one of many reasons why we, see, why we believe that what you see in the New Testament is something that God is continuing to do in the church um, to build up the church. There's other different things here. There's different passages that, that, are, that are laid out there, and many of them are kind of the narrative that takes place in the first century um, of things that would um, uh, are available for today. Uh, uh, chapter, Acts chapter 8, verse uh, verses 8 through 12, or I'm sorry, Acts chapter 4, verses 8 through 12. Um, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said, and the, rulers of the, the rulers of the people and the elders, if we are being examined today concerning good deeds done in the crippled man, by what means was this man healed? Let it be known, all of you and all the people of Israel, by the name of Jesus Christ, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him, the man standing here, is well. So chapter 4, we had chapter 2, now we have chapter 4. What we see is a man healed. So that passage is the one where Peter is going, and they're at the beautiful gate, and there's somebody who's, and they say, guy's begging, and they, they, he goes, silver and gold, we have none, but what we have, we give to you. Take up your bed and walk. Is healed. So if we believe that what God was doing in the Old Testament continues, that would mean we would believe that people can be healed. Right? So what you're seeing here throughout those verses that I have is we keep going in, and there's different... Acts chapter 10 is, is the story of, of Peter um, seeing, a, um, seeing a vision and God speaking to him in a dream about going to Cornelius. And it's the one where he says, don't, don't declare anything unclean, clean. And then he goes forward. So we see the Holy Spirit speaking in visions. 
here in, 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 in uh, chapter 10. And then he goes, and then from there he goes and he meets with Cornelius and he lays hands on them and the Holy Spirit comes on them and they speak in tongues. So we just keep seeing story after story here in Acts in the first century. So if we embrace the idea that this is something that has continued, these are the types of things that we can reasonably expect for God to do in our midst. This is the basic concept of continuationism. We believe God continues to do today in the church what he established in the prophecy of Joel and what he revealed in the book of Acts and what he explains in the book of 1 Corinthians and all throughout. Um, before we go any further, does anybody have any questions um, to this point? Cool. I've explained it well. Um, so this theology then kind of established for us um, four philosophical positions um, that have worked um, to give us what I would say are, are kind of uniquely established principles in the way in which we operate as a church. Um, now, when I say uniquely, I, I don't mean that to be kind of have a sense of exclusivity. I think when you are a church that has this philosophical or this theological belief, when you're looking at this and you're saying, this is what we believe God does, I think it, 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 would in necess it necessarily leads to these um, uh, principles that govern your church, and that, and for us, this is what this is kind of what we're talking about. Um, when I look at our church and I say, "Okay, we're trying to form this church, we're trying to govern this church, we're trying to lead this church," when I look at this and I say, "Okay, so if we believe that the Holy Spirit keeps leading, we believe that the Holy Spirit keeps speaking, we believe that the Holy Spirit keeps healing, we believe that the Holy Spirit um, uh, uh, keeps baptizing, we believe the Holy Spirit keeps giving gifts." and the idea here is the Holy Spirit leads us, then how do we do church? That, that seems like that would have an impact, right? Like, imagine for a moment you have a belief system that says um, the Holy Spirit doesn't, in supernatural ways, break in and speak and do things. That all that's been left for us is what the Bible says, and then our natural wisdom. Don't you think that would change the way in which you govern church? Change the way in which you lead church? Change the way in which you make decisions and interact with people? If you are a church that believes in the continuation of the Holy Spirit, working in the way that he did in the New Testament, that, that necessitates you then changing the way in which you lead the church, approaching the leadership of the church in a different way. Because at the core of this is this idea. What that ultimately means then is it is not the wisdom of elders or pastors that lead the church. It's the Holy Spirit leading the church. So you go, okay, let's follow what the Holy Spirit is saying. Let's listen and let's follow. So what that does is first and foremost, um, a faith in the continuationist theology requires a fidelity to the process of spirit inspiration over best practices. So that is something that I think um, is foundationally important when it comes to um, our position or my position and the position of the other elders as we're sitting back and we're going, okay, what, what decision do we make here? Um, how many of you ever had enough experience with the Holy Spirit that sometimes the Holy Spirit leads you to do things, 
calls you to do things, speaks to you in ways that seem to make absolutely no freaking sense whatsoever. Anybody ever had that experience? Where you're sitting there like, oh, you want me to do that? Like, if you haven't had that experience and you doubt that idea, read the book of Acts and see some of the ridiculous things <laughs> that the Holy Spirit would speak to people to do. And they would just go and freaking do it. Um, we've been having this conversation in our men's group, and we've been saying the book of Acts, and we've been talking about all the different things as you've walked through. And you're like, one of the most, one of the key factors that we discover as we're going through the book of Acts is the availability of the believer in that first century church to say, okay, I'll go do that. Um, if, think about how many guys you know, remember the story of Philip um, baptizing the Ethiopian eunuch? That story, right? If you ever read the story of Philip baptizing the Ethiopian eunuch, it goes in there and it says that, that the angel of the Lord spoke to Philip and told him to go, and, then, and it describes where he goes, and it's literally in the middle of a desert. There's nothing there. There, there's no house there, there's no buildings there, there's no city there, there's no town there. The Holy Spirit says, go to this place in the middle of a desert. And doesn't tell him anything else. Read the story. He doesn't say, go to this place in the desert and you'll discover this man who is a, 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 a eunuch from Ethiopia that you will share with him the voice of the Lord. It just says, go into the middle of the desert. Now, I've said this when I was talking with the guys in our men's group. I'm like, like, I don't, like, I don't, and this is personal confession, I don't generally obey the Holy Spirit for those things. That's like, I, cannot, I can honestly say there's so many times in my walk with Jesus Christ where I'm like, I feel like the Holy Spirit's telling me to do this, but it's stupid, so it's probably not him. It's probably something I ate last night. Like, that's the approach I have to these things. But Philip's like, go into the middle of the desert. The, the Lord speaks to him, says, go in the middle of the desert, and he just goes in the middle of the desert. And then this whole amazing thing happens there. That's why when you read it, and you guys remember, like, like he sees him in the chariot and says he runs to him. That's one of the things that, as I think about him, like, well, that's why he ran to him. Like, he's like, holy crap, there's actually somebody here. God's got an appointment for me. And he gets so excited about it, he runs to him. And then he, as he walks up to him, He's reading the Bible. And not only is he reading the Bible, he's reading the prophecy about Jesus Christ. And he's like, I don't understand it. Could you explain it to me? So cool, right? So incredibly, amazingly cool. But what the Holy Spirit told him to do seems illogical and silly. Well, that's kind of the way in which when you're leading a church, you've got to sit back and go. Sometimes doing this is what the Holy Spirit wants us to do. It might not get more people in the, in the pews. It might, not get, it might get, not get me more, more likes on Facebook. It might not get me more followers. It might not even make sense for us as it relates to looking at our church and going, we need to be bigger because we need, more, we need more tithe. We need more people coming in here. So our goal is to become a church that is bigger and we don't have to worry about finances and all that stuff. So let's make decisions and plans that do the best job that we can to bring people in. See, that, that's logical thinking. And, and, and a lot of times as pastors, you can get caught up into that. 
And, and, and unfortunately, in all sincerity, there's so many churches out there that, that set aside this idea of let's just figure out what God wants us to do regardless of whether or not it makes sense. And let's do what makes what 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 we think makes sense. That's why you go to church growth seminars and you and you spend hours and hours studying this guy and you go on you know creativepastors.com and you download the the latest coolest sermon and you just preach another guy's sermon because it got a, it gets crowds and yada yada yada. What you have to do is you have to go listen. I truly believe in a in a continuationist theology that says the Holy Spirit speaks and leads us. So let's listen to what the Holy Spirit is saying, and let's preach what the Holy Spirit is telling us to preach. Let's worship in the way the Holy Spirit teaches, is telling us to worship. Let's choose to move into certain buildings the way the Holy Spirit leads us to do it. One of the stories I tell all the time is, for some of you guys, you haven't been here since, like, since very, very early on. How many guys went to church here at um, the Hyde House? Right. So for those of you who went to church at the Hyde House, you might not know this, but it was... It's the stupidest strategic decision I could have ever made at the formation of our church of Mercy Hill. It's, it, it went against every single thing I was taught in church growth seminars. Um, we, it's, I want to shorten the story, but, but essentially we found it through this, through this, through this kind of like, you know, side, side way and found a thing that said, if you, want, if you want to rent the space for an event, and we're like, oh, let's go check it out. We show up, and it's a, multi, it's a multi-tenant space in an old, 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 old building in which has been almost completely and totally not developed. There's literally two spaces in the entire building that don't look completely trashed when we first walked in. Now, they developed it more as we went by. By the time we left there, there was more spaces developed. There was almost no tenants in the building. The tenants that were in the building were what they would call, they called them... Um, Glamour photographers, but what they basically were were nude photographers. And it's this old building. You walk in, it's all cement and that. Well, the first thing I noticed when I walked, when we came to the building was, it's freaking impossible to find. It's in the middle of a little neighborhood, has a, has a um, train track on the backside. It dead ends in that spot. And, and literally when we were there for years, like I'd have people come in and say, this is the third Sunday I've tried to find you guys. And we're like, well, we kind of like to be a secret society, so... It works out well. And, and the second thing you notice is that there's absolutely no, so you can't find the place. You can't see the place from any direction whatsoever unless you're, unless you're right on top of it. So the first two rules that I've always been taught in, in, in church growth was you want a building that is visible and accessible. It was neither visible nor accessible. The third rule is you want parking. The only parking lot it had was a small parking lot that, sat, that parked 35 cars. That was the third thing. You walk into the building, it's all, it was all concrete, and it was kind of cool because it had cream city brick and, and wood beams and that kind of thing. But when you walked in, the loading dock was just all concrete. What was in the space when we moved in there, not only did we have nude photographers running around that place, but on the left-hand side, the, one of the only other tenants there was somebody who, who sold clothing for strippers. So for, for the first year or so, there were times you'd walk in on a Sunday morning, there would be a mannequin a uh, nude mannequin with tassels hanging from, from her breast. And so I'd walk in with my little boys and I'd cover their eyes as we'd walk past. Um, the space they had for us was on the second floor. You never have, you, one of the other rules is you never want to be on the second floor um, because it's the inaccessibility of it. Well, they had an elevator, but it was this old, rickety um, service elevator that you kind of took your life into your hands when you went in it. 
So all the rules, everything about it was completely wrong. Everything I had always been taught about what it means, how you'd grow a new church in this building was completely wrong. And the moment I walked into the space, I had the Holy Spirit speak to me clearer than I ever have. And he says, this is your new home. And that's where we ended up. And God kind of blessed it and used it. And there was all these different things that, that connected us. But a faith in continuous theology requires a fidelity to the process of the Spirit inspiration over best practices. It's what we've always done as Mercy Hill Church. Our primary doctrine as it, as it relates to our approach to the Holy Spirit, number two, uh, in community is that we can do whatever, that he can do whatever he wants and whatever he, and, and whatever he doesn't want. And what we mean by that is this has been something that we've talked about from the very beginning. What we've always tried to position ourselves as a church is the Holy Spirit can do whatever he wants to do and doesn't have to do anything he doesn't want to do. And what I mean by that is we're, neither, we're, not, we're not driven by experience. We're not driven and say, well, we've got to create this thing so that people are like, oh, look what's happening here at that church. The Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit wants to you know, move in a still small voice. Cool. The Holy Spirit can do whatever he wants to do and doesn't have to do anything he doesn't want to do. We're not trying to make something happen. What we are trying to do is create a space where we say, Holy Spirit, do what you want to do. And we'll allow you to move. And if you do things that make us uncomfortable, we'll have to figure out a way to deal with it. <laughs> and, if you, and if you don't do things that we want you to do, we have to figure out how to deal with it. Because we don't want to create something. We don't, I don't want emotionalism. But I want true Holy Spirit experience. And it doesn't, it, it doesn't have to fit into what I'm comfortable with. As, even as the pastor. Now, in leadership, it's our, it's our responsibility to judge whether something is of the spirit or of the flesh or maybe even of, of, of the demonic. That's our job. That's to test the spirits. That's one of the things the Bible tells us to test. But the Holy Spirit can move in ways that I don't necessarily like. And if he chooses not to move, I got to be okay with that too. And I say that in sincere, very genuinely as it relates to being a pastor. Because when you put yourself in this position and you go, this needs to be a Holy Spirit thing, there's a desire you have inside you to have the Holy Spirit do some things. Because you want to see God, you want to see people touched in incredible ways. You want to see God move in incredible ways. But sometimes he doesn't choose to do things the way you want him to. And so you got to be okay with that. So understand, for, for your participation here at Mercy Hill Church, that is the way we approach everything. If there's something going on that you think is like, well, that's just stupid, weird, whatever, understand something. None of us are trying to orchestrate anything here. We're not trying to create something for your experience. We're not. Now, there may be something that goes place, and it's like, oh, that's, that's actually something that's it's in the flesh. They're doing it themselves. And understand, we'll address that. We do. We pastor these things. We have conversations with people all the time where we're like, hey, you know what? That, I, that might, I don't think that was necessary for the congregation. We have those conversations all the time. We don't always do it in front of you. Sometimes we do it mercifully and gracious, graciously to people on the side, but we're pastoring. So if there's something going on and it's not something you're comfortable with, understand we're not trying to create something. But we just got to be comfortable with whatever the Holy Spirit wants. How many of you guys want to be at a church that's okay with whatever the Holy Spirit wants to do? then we got to be okay with it. And that's what we have to be okay with. 
And that's what we try and do at Mercy Hill Church um, in total. That's like our philosophy when it comes to church. Number three, we have to have faith in the activity of the Holy Spirit. Faith in the activity of the Holy Spirit leads us to a ministry philosophy that is not, not about bigger or more, but about feeling, following the Spirit's leading. This kind, of, this kind of relates to what we talked about in the, as number one. But, it's, but here I'm talking less about, less about methodology and more about outcome. So the first one is kind of more about the methodology of things. We have to do what the Holy Spirit leads us to do, um, not what we think is best practices. But this one is, more, this, this one is more about realizing that Christianity and church is not an outcome-based endeavor. We are not a better church because we're a bigger church. Being a church of 500 or 5,000 or 15,000 or 20,000 doesn't mean you are a good church that's doing great things. You might be an incredibly crappy church doing incredibly crappy things. Because numbers don't dictate. Numbers don't determine whether or not what you're doing is of value or not of value. Um, one of the things I've, I've, I've had actually a couple opportunities to, to teach, to, to speak to some pastors as it relates to this. And, and one of the things that always strikes me is as I walk through Scripture, um, we see, we see uh, different outcomes um, for the same preacher <laughs> preaching incredible messages. So like, so like, for me, the two that I always like to compare is the pre- message that the pre- sermon that, would, that Peter preached in Acts two on the day of Pentecost, right? And it's an amazing message. It really is. From a from a from an orator's perspective, it's an incredible, it's an incredible dissertation on the history of of the church, uh, the history of Israel, and how it, it points to Jesus Christ and what Christ is doing. So he preaches this incredible message. And at the end of it, he, he asks them, uh, they, 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 they ask, what, can, what should we do? And he says, repent and be, be baptized and filled with the Holy Spirit, right? And it says thousands came to the Lord that day, right? It, you can kind of quibble how many thousands because it depends on how they're counting. But thousands, he preaches this 11-minute message and thousands of people get, get saved. Fast forward to the message that Paul preaches at, at, um, at Mars Hill which is another incredibly brilliant message, particularly in the context of, of what he was dealing with and what he was under. And if you leave, and you get the end of the sermon, and then they go, and some believe that day. And then it was so few that they actually listed the names of guys. So was, was Peter's message more godly, more God-inspired, more Holy Spirit than, than Paul's? No. In fact, you can go, the other sermon that between those two that's pretty incredible is a sermon preached by, by Stephen. Read that. He basically, he basically takes a very similar tack that, that, Paul, that Peter does in his sermon. So in chapter, in chapter 2, Peter preaches this incredible sermon where he goes through the entire Old Testament. He just, not entire, but he take, goes to the Old Testament, he preaches out of that Old Testament, and then he ties it to Jesus, and People get baptized in the Holy Spirit. People get saved, and it's thousands. Stephen gets on the stage, and now he goes in and basically preaches a message that's, it's like, it's like, it's like Peter's message 2.0. He takes the same ideas, but he, but he goes all the way through the Old Testament, the, the, all of what took place in the Old Testament pointing to Jesus. And do you know what happened at the end of his sermon? They took big rocks and threw it at him until he was dead. 
which I've never thought of this before, but what a disappointment for Stephen. You know what I mean? Seems like, well, it worked for Peter, and now they are going to kill me. Was Peter's message worse? Was his ministry less? Did he do anything wrong? No. And so for us, what we are looking at throughout all of this is all, I, all we care about is what the Holy Spirit wants us to do and what the Holy Spirit wants us to be. And understand something. I don't say this for your, for your consumption. I'm not saying this to try and, to try and like put on some face. That is deeply, sincerely what motivates us, what motivates me since the very first day Mercy Hill Church ever met. And it motivates me every single morning I get up. This is what we want to be. And we've, we've, I've, I've wrestled through, through my entire career with having to, to die to self and not worry about numbers, to die to self and not worry about reputation, to die to self and just be faithful to God's word and God's Holy Spirit. And that's what we try to do. Um, so it is, it, so faith in the activity of the Holy Spirit leads us to a ministry philosophy that is not about bigger or more, but simply about following the Spirit's leading. And then finally, a belief in the continuing work of the Holy Spirit requires a resting in his work to disciple and perfect the church body as we continue to be faithful to both God's word and our calling. Now, that, that, um, that, that sentence there is an attempt for me to try and explain to you what kind of takes place in the hearts of the leadership here at Mercy Hill Church. So... Um, when you're a pastor, when you're an elder of a church, you you have a desire for your church. And when I say that, when I say that, it's not I'm not saying that I'm not saying that simply from like the the collective or the community of your church. You have a heart for that, you have a desire for that, but really what you have more than that is a heart and desire for each individual person. And so you're sitting here and you're working forward and you're trying to do what you can to get people to where, where you want them to be, to get, to get their marriage healed, to get their, the, the, to get, get their hearts um, uh, restored, um, get them to a place in which they, they get past things in their life and they can live in a place where their joy takes hold of them. And, and you see that from the individual place. And then from a, from a corporate sense, you're looking at the church, you're like, I want my church to be fill in the blank. I want to see God do the incredible. I want to see whatever. And... And there is, a, there is an internal pressure on you that is, is really hard. It's a really difficult thing to wrestle through. Because one of the things that, one of the things that I wrestle with, I just had a conversation with somebody just a week ago about this very thing, is I understand that in my position, and, and, and then extending that to the rest of the elders, but in many ways in my position, um, uh, more, probably more, what's the right way to say it, um, more intensely, um, you realize that that you're a you're a factor in this, or like like I am a factor in in the health of this church or the development of this church or what takes place. I'm the guy who's up here every Sunday giving a message, and I'm a part of the leadership team that's making direct decisions for the direction of the church and what we do and what we don't do. And so you're constantly going, "Is it my fault?" And it, 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 is, is, it, is the reason why we're not breaking through or this isn't taking place, is it my fault? Am, is, am I in the way? Am I making the right decision or the wrong decision? And so this is the type of thing that when you're pastoring with any sense of, um, of um, responsibility 
for the outcome of your church, it can become very crushing. It can become very difficult to manage. And one of the things that we are, we tr- and, and I think what happens in that is things get um, really unhealthy. It gets unhealthy for me as an individual or us in, as pastors and leadership, but that unhealthiness ends up, ends up um, flowing into the church uh, in and of itself. There's a lot of things that take place, but one of the primary things is when you as a pastor think it's, it's you that's either su- succeeding or failing, you then, be- you then become the centerpiece of things too easily, and it becomes about you. And it becomes very warped, the relationship you have with the people in your congregation, the relationship the congregation has with you. And so when you look at this church, what we have always tried to do is we've tried to say, this is the Holy Spirit's work. This is the Holy Spirit's work. We're going to do our very best to be faithful to God's word. We're going to do our very best to listen to the Holy Spirit. We're going to do our very best to um, put the time in and the work in and all of that. But then we're going to trust the Holy Spirit with your discipleship. We're going to trust the Holy Spirit with your development. We're going to trust the Holy Spirit to do what the Holy Spirit's going to do. And I can't, I can't stand there and say, well, look at, I can't stand there and celebrate, like, look what I did for them. Look at, I get credit for that. Look at, look at what I did. And I also have to get to a point where I don't feel in a way in which I go, it's my fault. I have to be faithful to the best of my ability, and then I have to trust that the Holy Spirit is the one that ultimately saves the Holy Spirit is ultimately the one that disciples. The Holy Spirit is the one that ultimately redeems. The Holy Spirit is the one that ultimately renews. He does it. And we're just going to be faithful to the very best of our ability because we believe that the actually agent that makes the difference is not Tommy, but the Holy Spirit. So that's how we approach things um, uh, as a result of our theology. Any thoughts or questions um, what I've expressed thus far? Alrighty, and then this this theology leads us to three uh, de- definitive practices. Um, we practice a dependency on prayer, um, and where this connects or where this becomes important is that what we're saying by this is is the Holy Spirit leads, as it said, for as many are led by the Spirit, these are the sons of God. When the Spirit of Truth has come, He will guide you into all truth. So we understand that the way for us to know the direction that he wants us to go is by praying, seeking his, his, his face, um, um, uh, fasting, and going, let's figure out what God wants us to do in this. We just had, a, we just had an elder board meeting last, last night, and we're kind of wrestling through some things, um, particularly on the, on, the, on the financial front. And one of the elders is like, God may be wanting to do something in us through this. We should spend some time just really praying about it and figure out maybe it's not just a question of, of, of dollars and cents, but it's a question of something that God wants to do, and let's pray about it. And so that's what the elders have, have committed themselves to. And I can, I can give you example after example after example that that's what we try to do. We go, all right, we have to be committed to prayer because we have to be following the Holy Spirit. How do we find out what the Holy Spirit wants us to do? We get our faces into the carpet and we pray a little bit. So it requires you to have a dependency on prayer if you're going to be led by the Holy Spirit in what you do. Second of all, we rely on the gifts of the Spirit for the edification of the church. This one um, particularly is probably one that a lot of you guys um, are uh, at least uh, well aware of. Um, But when you look at 1 Corinthians 12, what you see is a very specific 
um, description as to how the Holy Spirit works through the gifts and why the gifts are present in the church to begin with. Uh, 1 Corinthians 12, starting in verse 4, says, Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another, working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. And then if you jump down to verse 27, it says, Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, in various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the higher gifts. That whole dissertation is about how the church is built up, how the church is edified, how the church becomes and is what the church is designed to be by the gifts of the Holy Spirit manifesting themselves in our midst. When the Holy Spirit comes and inspires preaching, the Holy Spirit comes and gives the prophetic word, when the Holy Spirit comes and gets words of wisdom and words of knowledge, when the Holy Spirit heals people, when the Holy Spirit gives the gift of tongues with the interpretation of tongues, when the Holy Spirit is working in that way, the body of Christ is built up. And so we can't stand in the way of God doing these things. We can't, we, we can't be overly restrictive. We can pastor it. We can make sure that things are not crazy, that things are not chaotic, like Paul was correcting here in 1 Corinthians. But we have to allow the Holy Spirit to move in the way that the Holy Spirit desires to move because it's telling us that's how the church is built up. That's how it's edified. If the 1 Corinthians is instruction for the church today, and 1 Corinthians is telling us that the church is edified by the manifestation of the gifts in community, what happens when you don't allow the gifts of the Spirit to manifest in community? The church will not be edified. So we have to be okay with it. And so we want the Holy Spirit to do that, what the Holy Spirit wants to do. We rely on that for the church's edification. And then finally, the last one there that you'll see on the back side of your page is um, what this does is this, and this is a specific idea. Now I, now I um, as, as you, in that, in that second chapter, in that second um, point, I talked about the broader ideas of the edification of the body through these different gifts. I, I wanted to, then the third, I wanted to make something, something clear and this falls into that list that we have in 1 Corinthians, but it is something specific that I want us people to understand. We pray expectantly for healing. We believe that God is a healing God. We believe that. We believe that the Word of God shows that God heals. There's a declaration that He heals. We see it happening over and over again throughout the ministry of Jesus, throughout the ministry of the disciples when Jesus sent them out, throughout the ministry of the apostles when the apostles were sent out. We believe that God heals. And I want you to understand that, that even within there, there's, there's, been a real, there's been a real growth and evolution of my understanding of this or my commitment to and a dedication to this even over the last year or so. When I look at Scripture, 
the expectation seems very clear. I'm going to pray for somebody. They're going to be healed. That's what's happening in the, in the New Testament. That's what takes place in the New Testament. Now, I do believe sometimes people aren't healed. But that's not, that, that's not the expectation that the first century church had. It was, we go and we pray. And we believe that God's healed. When, you, when we, we referenced that passage with Peter and, and, uh, uh, Peter and John when they were at the beautiful gate, right? Silver and gold I have none, but what I have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, take up your bed and walk. There. No, no blinking, no hesitation. The belief was, and then you can go through, and through what took place in Jesus' ministry, through what took place in the disciples, through what took place in, the, in, in, in the book of Acts, it was consistent that, that healings were taking place. Now, this is a bigger topic, and there's a lot of conversation I have around it, but understand, we believe that we're going to pray with the expectancy of healing. We also believe that there are times in which God chooses to speak to us and say, um, I'm not healing you. And I, and I believe that that comes from, there's, like I say, I, there's a big theological discussion to have around it, but I believe that that's what was taking place with Paul when he said, my, when, Jesus, when he prayed to have a thorn removed from him, and Jesus said to him, my grace is sufficient for you. I actually believe that that dealt with, a, that's a, that's a physical ailment that was being expressed there. Um, I also believe that God can use physical things that are going on in our bodies to teach us things about a lack of discipline or idolatry in our own lives. So in other words, as an example, if you have diabetes because all you do is eat sugar and then you pray that God, God heals you from the diabetes, God may say to you, the problem is not with that, it's that you're eating poorly, change your eating habits. I believe God can do that. And then I believe ultimately the fulfillment of God's healing will always come. We, we have a full understanding that we have joy in the Lord now, but we don't have perfect joy yet. We have peace in the Lord now, but we don't have peace, perfect peace yet, right? It is the idea of the kingdom of heaven is at hand, meaning it is here and yet to come. So ultimately there will be healing, that God will heal us one day. That's what we're promised. Paul makes that declaration. But this is the approach that we take. We pray expecting God to heal until God speaks. So always this is going to be an idea of, this is always going to be an idea of, it's always about God intervening. And what, I, and, and what that means is, we may pray for you, you might not be healed, but we're not done praying for you. We don't go, well, why hasn't God healed you? We don't know yet. We're going to keep praying. And if God speaks to you and says, listen, my grace is sufficient for you, there's something I'm doing in this, cool. Then we go, cool, God is wanting to do something in my life through this, and, I, and, and, and I'm done praying until God tells me otherwise. Or he's going to say, or he might say to you, listen, you can keep praying, but what I want you to do is, this has become idolatrous in your life, I want you to change this area of your life, and healing will come through that obedience. Healing is entirely about the Holy Spirit breaking in and revealing God. And so we believe whenever the faithful seek God in healing, the outcome will be God breaking in and, and showing himself to us and speaking. So we never stop praying for healing unless God tells us to stop praying for healing, and we never stop expecting God to either speak or heal. That's the posture we have as Mercy Hill Church because I believe that's what we see in Scripture on a regular basis.